0: Amen. Thank you. Uh, If you have a Bible, please go ahead and open it up to John chapter 6. John 6. I think there's going to be some people with Bibles walking down the aisle. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, just nonchalantly slip up your hand or confidently. That's even better. Uh, You want to grab one of those? We use them every week. Uh, John 6, 1 through 4 is where we are uh, this morning. Uh, 1 through 14, you'll see it on the screen there. Um, We are walking through the seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. John calls these miraculous things that Jesus does signs, but they're miracles, and they're pointing to something about Jesus. And this morning, we have the incredible task of looking at one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture, the story where Jesus feeds a massive crowd of people a bunch of food. It's a story commonly called the feeding of the 5,000, and out of all the miraculous signs that Jesus did, this is the one that has sort of the largest scale or scope in its impact, because if you've been following with us through these seven signs of Jesus, when Jesus does something, it's it's often to an individual. He heals somebody, or he performs a miracle in some way that only a select amount of people know, but here Jesus performs a sign, a miracle, that impacts thousands of people, and therefore you have thousands of of witnesses to this extravagant thing that Jesus does. This is an exclusive, um, this, this, this story is sort of in an exclusive club as well. It's in all four of the gospel accounts, which is a very rare thing to see. And so just at the, at the least of what I'm trying to say is this story is very, very significant. It's a very important story. And uh, I think we're going to have a little bit of a problem on our hands, though, And that problem is that this story is probably really familiar to many of you. And uh, some of you, though, might have the privilege of never of of having heard this story. When I'm talking about even setting up the story and sort of just telling you that Jesus is going to feed some people, you're like, oh, I'm excited. Well, I don't know what's going to happen here. And that's really awesome because if you really give yourself to the story, Jesus is going to blow your mind. And, and many of you maybe you have heard this story like 150 plus times, and at one point when you heard it for the first time, it blew your mind. The second time, you're like, "That's amazing." The third time, you're like, "That's really cool." The fourth time, you're like, "Yeah, there Jesus goes, just feeding people." Yeah, that's not that cool anymore, right? It kind of loses its umph a little bit. Okay, it's become too familiar uh, of a story for us. I remember as a kid, I grew up in Montana. And I remember I think once, maybe twice in my life, my parents took us to Disneyland in Southern California. And in Montana, we don't have anything cool except nature, okay? And nature's really cool. but We don't have anything like Disneyland. We have, like, Kmart and stuff, okay? And so my parents, they took us to Disneyland, and I remember showing up to Disneyland just being in awe, like, wow, it literally felt heaven-like. I was just in another realm of the world that I didn't know you could be in, okay? And then we went a second time, and same experience, and so when I went off to college in Southern California, me and a bunch of friends decided to get an annual pass to Disneyland. And even as a college student, I showed up and I was like, this is amazing, this is awesome. But then it became just such a casual thing. We'd be hanging around, we were kind of bored, we're like, what do you want to do tonight? I don't know, let's just go to Disneyland. We'd just go hang out at Disneyland, we'd go on like two rides, always Indiana Jones, you know, and something else, and we would just casually hang out for a couple hours and go home. It kind of lost its umph. But Disneyland never changed. It was still just as amazing as it always had been. The problem was I became too familiar with Disneyland, and if I would just stop and stare and look around and imagine again through the eyes, really true eyes of how great Disneyland is, I would see and feel something differently, right? This story is like Disneyland in that way. It hasn't changed, it's still just as amazing, and it's really my prayer and hope for us this morning that we would all posture our hearts prayerfully and sort of lean in, sort of sit on the edge of your seat, so to speak, not literally, I don't want you to fall off, but kind of lean forward a little bit and press into this story because God has something very powerful for us to see, to think about, and to believe about Jesus, okay? And what he wants us to see, I think the umph of this passage in this miracle is that Jesus is the food That we must have. He's the food that you must have. To put it differently, He is the food that will satisfy you. He's the only food that will satisfy you. On your notes, you'll see the roadmap of where we're headed. Uh, You're gonna see uh, that this passage shows us that Jesus is food for the mind, He's food for the body, and He's lasting food for the soul. So, first, Jesus. Is food for the mind. Uh, Again, we're in John chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 10. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, uh, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, who's Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, uh, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. So you'll notice uh, when this started, you have this sort of time stamp on this story. It says, after this. And it doesn't mean that chapter five happens in John and then right away chapter six. Actually, a lot of things have happened in between John five and six. Um, Between John five and six, actually a year and a half has passed. And when you read the gospel of Mark, you get a real clear understanding of what's happening in between chapters five and six of John. You see John the Baptist uh, is beheaded, he's persecuted. You see Jesus send out his disciples on this intense missionary journey and they go out and they do all these crazy things. They're really busy. They're seeing God work in miraculous ways, but they're so busy that they don't even really even have time to eat. And they come back, and they're hanging out with Jesus, and they decide to get in this boat with Jesus, and to go across the sea with him, and they're kind of hoping to get a little bit of a retreat in, a little bit of special time, quality time in with Jesus. But you see in verse 2 that this crowd is seeing all that Jesus is doing, and it's really picking up some steam. They're passionately following him, they're seeing these signs and and all these things that Jesus is doing and this massive crowd is following Jesus and his disciples and they really won't seem to leave them alone. But Jesus is amazing because he's not really filled with annoyance. I feel like at some point I would be. You know, I'm like, I've done enough, give me a break. you know. But Jesus isn't filled with annoyance, he's actually in a sense filled with compassion because what does it say? We're told that Jesus sees this crowd and he sees their need. He sees their need. What's their need? Well, they've been following him so intensely, kind of without abandon in a sense, uh, that they forgot to figure out what they're doing for dinner. That they're really hungry. That's, That's the need that they have, it's food. But more importantly, Jesus here, he doesn't just see the crowd, he sees an opportunity to test his disciples. And really he sees an opportunity to test Philip in particular. And so he asks Philip where they can buy bread. And Philip's response isn't, we don't have a market here, Jesus. His response is basically, Jesus, we can't afford it. Do You see that in verse 7. What does he say in verse 7? He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. Not even a, a little bit of bread. 200 denarii, which we don't use that currency, so it sounds odd to us. But the denarii was a whole day's wage. So basically, Philip says, we need more than eight months of wages to feed even a little bit of food to a crowd like this. So this is where Philip's focus goes. And verse 6 says, this was a test from Jesus. It's a test from Jesus. He already knew, it says, it says he already knew that he, what he was going to do. And it was a test for Philip. He, he could look to an obvious or naturalistic solution, like we need money, we need a market. Or potentially, he could look to the one asking him the question to provide, Jesus. And so Andrew speaks up because Philip, he's completely stumped, right? And Andrew has found this little boy who has some barley bread and a couple fish, Now, um, this is actually important to understand. We'll talk about this a little bit tonight, or this morning. Um, Barley bread, if it had a Yelp review, it wouldn't do very well, okay? It would do very bad. One commentator said about barley bread in the first century, this is what he said, it's lowered gluten content, which for some of you, it sounds awesome, right? Low extraction rate, less desirable taste, and indigestibility, made it a staple of the poor in Roman times. Doesn't that sound delicious, right? Who's clamoring for some barley bread right now? You're thinking, I'm changing my lunch plans right now. Barley bread, right? Well, essentially, in a sense, let me put it to you in, in to our day and age, okay? Essentially what barley bread loaves looked like and tasted like, I, I like to equate to plain Triscuits. Does anybody like plain Triscuits? Three, yes. That is really you're you're a, you're a select few, right? I don't know many people who like plain triscuits. I'm pretty sure it's made out of like whole wheat flour and sadness, really. I mean triscuits, not good. Okay. I mean if you if you you kind of have to take a drink between each bite or else you might dehydrate and die, basically, right? There's, they're no one's favorite snack except for three of you, essentially, okay? And so Philip, he doesn't have a plan, okay? And Andrew has this sort of Trisket plan, this barley bread plan. And, and I'm honestly, I'm really sure that we all would have responded the same way. I mean, they're in the middle of the wilderness, and this is a massive crowd, calculated to be about 5,000 men. That doesn't even account for all the women and children, because back in this day, you would count people by the head of the household. Okay? So there's probably more around the, the realm of eighteen to 20,000 people that they're staring at. And if we were standing there and all we had was a couple fish and a few triscuits, I think we would be challenged with the same sort of thinking, right? I mean, seriously, don't lose the awe of this story, okay? I want you to try to imagine this. This room seats 300 people, okay? It would be the equivalent of 67 majestic theaters filled with people that you'd be staring at translate out, out a little bit further, that's like filling two gill coliseums. If you don't know what that is, that's where the beavers play basketball. You should go watch them this year. They're going to do great, right? Or it'd be like filling half of Reser Stadium full of people, and you're standing there looking at a sea of people. Everyone's hungry. They're following Jesus, and they have a few triscuits and a couple fish. These are extremely hungry folks, and that's, that's all you can see. How are we going to figure out this problem? But Jesus, guys, he's not trying to figure out the problem. He already knew what he was going to do. It wasn't about the food. It was about Philip. It wasn't about the food. It was about Philip. And so essentially this morning then, it's still not about the food. It's about you. It's not about the food. We are are faced in life with regular experiences where we see what we need and we see this chasm between that and what we have. And we have no idea how that chasm is going to be filled. We don't see a path or a way forward. I don't even probably need to go into specifics for you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. This could be any, anything financial, relational, emotional, spiritual, physical, See, this test is, is, is for us, too. Do we merely look at, to the material like Philip when we see this chasm that's set before us? Or we, do we look to Jesus? Alvin Plantinga, he's, he's a brilliant uh, Christian philosopher. I highly commend him to you. Um, but he, he talks about our lives kind of in this way, and I like the way he talks about it. He says, I want to, you to imagine that you're on a really dark street, and you've lost your keys in the street. And you see one lamppost that's illuminating part of the street. He said, it's, it's one thing to go look for your keys underneath the light at first. That makes sense. To go look under the light and see if your keys are there. But if they're not there, it's a whole other thing to look underneath the scope of that light and say, well, they can't possibly be in the darkness. They have to be here in the light. I, I don't see a path forward. My keys can't possibly be outside of this boundary because it's dark there. I can't see it. So it can't possibly be there. Do you see what he's trying to say? I think that image is a very good image for how many of us approach circumstances in our lives where we see this huge gap between what we need and what we have. Our vision is so Narrow, and all we can seem to focus on is what seemingly feels normal or material or right in front of us. And when what life is throwing at us doesn't process perfectly, we often think, I don't see a path forward. There cannot be a path forward. My keys aren't in the light, they can't possibly be in the dark. And I need my keys, but I don't see my keys here in the light. There's a gap, there's a chasm. And guys, what what Jesus wants from Philip and from Andrew and from all his disciples, including us who follow him today, is not just to look at the ground, but to look at him. He is testing his disciples because he desires that their faith would actually grow and stretch and mature. Jesus wants Philip, and Jesus wants us to see this morning that only Jesus can fill the chasm between what we need and what we have. Only Jesus can do that. We don't have what we need in and of ourselves. It's only Jesus who can fill that chasm. So Jesus tests his disciples, although he knows what he can do, and his challenge to his disciples was to cause them to really rethink everything. It's it's food for the mind. It's a test to cause us to reconsider everything that we believe about the world, and for Philip, it, it meant reevaluating how he could find bread. Maybe our keys really could be in another part of the street. Jesus is food for the mind, but he's also food for the body. Look in verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So, Jesus takes this humble meal. He gives thanks for it, right? You should pray before you eat, apparently, right? And he he has his disciples distribute it, and everyone ate as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. Not just enough to get them by, as much as they wanted. They had more than enough. There were leftovers, okay? I love leftovers. Do you guys love leftovers? I'm convinced there's two kinds of people in this world, those who love leftovers and those who are wrong, right? (laughs) Leftovers are amazing. They're like the encore, you know? Like after your favorite band or singer-songwriter plays and they come out, it's like the the encore. It's like my wife makes me, you know, dinner, because I'm terrible at it, so I'm thankful she makes, she's a great cook, like she'll make dinner. When there's leftovers, I get excited about lunch the following day, because I know what I'm eating for lunch. I know it's gonna be great, I love leftovers. But why would Jesus perform this miracle in a way that that there were leftovers? Did he like miscalculate? Of course not, it wasn't a mistake. There, this is no small thing that there were leftovers. But Jesus didn't create leftovers because he knew that his 12 disciples loved leftovers and knew what they wanted for lunch the following day. That's not why he does this. What Jesus is pointing to here is very significant. I wish there was a better word I could use. It's very significant. What he is saying by filling these 12 baskets with these, oh, these overflowing baskets of leftovers, is he saying that he is the true and better Moses? That's what he's saying. If you were an Israelite, you kind of have to like transport your mind in a sense to this scene. Think about what they're experiencing here, right? It's very vivid. They're in a wilderness, they're in the middle of nowhere, they're by a sea, okay? They're being fed miraculously. This conjured up for them these very clear images of when God's people, Israel, when they were slaves in Egypt. When they were slaves in Egypt, and God looked out on their slavery in Egypt, he heard their cries to be rescued from from this slavery, and he sent them Moses, Israel's most respected, most revered, and greatest prophet. And Moses led Israel out of slavery through the miraculous parting of the sea, and they wandered in the wilderness for years and years, and they were fed manna from heaven. And to top it all off, do you remember what it said in verse 4? It says that what's happening during this time is the feast of Passover. It's Passover, which was the festival where every year God's people would come together, and they would remember that God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and he spared all of their firstborn sons in those plagues by by them spreading blood of a lamb over their doorposts. See, all of this imagery, guys, you've got to see, it's so vivid here. What Jesus is doing here is he's showing these people that the kingdom of God is come. It is here and now. He is showing the restoration of the 12 tribes in Israel and how he's going to continue his work in the people of God through these 12 new apostles that are going to follow Jesus and proclaim this new gospel of his kingdom throughout the world. But what is the kingdom of God? Well, honestly, there's a specific detail here about this food that was multiplied that we must see. We are told here that this meal that they were fed was bread that only poor people would eat. Okay? And we, we talked about this. This is a very poor person, you know, food. And, and, and to top it all off, um, this, this was coming from the hands of a boy, a child, and he has this, this this little tiny you know meal of fish, which was probably small and, and pickled. It would have been more like a side dish. And so you have this poor boy, who in that day and age, especially too, children were um, were very set aside. They were generally seen in this culture as unimportant. They were not helpful to society. They were economically expensive. They were seen really in the eyes of all these people as a less meaningful a part of society. So do you see? Do you see what's happening here? This meal is a very meager lunch of a very poor, socially disadvantaged boy. And Jesus provides an abundance of food for the hungry using the poor boy's food. Guys, you have to see this. All of Jesus' miracles, he's not just showing off. He's not just showing you what he can do or what he's able to do, they're showing you that he is reversing something that's broken in the world. All of his miracles do this, and we've seen that consistently. We see that here, that God works against hunger in the world, so what does he do? He feeds the multitudes. We see that God works against the decay of loneliness in the world. What does he do in the gospels? He heals lepers we are very isolated people because of their sickness. We saw last week, he opens the eyes of the blind. We're going to see that he resurrects the dead. Why? Because he's working against the decay of sickness and death. The kingdom of God is advancing, and these signs are showing that. See, miracles are these signs of Jesus. They're a restoration of the way that the world actually should be. They're not just announcing uh, in, in in, in word that God has come, but they're showing indeed that God's kingdom has come to earth and the darkness and the brokenness of this world are being pushed back by this true and better Moses, Jesus. So so please don't minimize that this morning. Jesus didn't say, you know, everyone's hungry, but hey guys, good news, one day you won't be hungry. That's not simply what Jesus says. He says, they are hungry now, let's feed them. And as Christians, when we are mobilized to care for the hungry and the needy in our world, we display the heart of Jesus. We display the kingdom of Jesus. We're called to this. So this miracle that Jesus did, John calls a sign, okay? This miracle we just saw, John calls it a sign. And they're meant to point you to something. They're meant to direct you towards another destination, okay? There's a picture here on the screen I want you to see. Have you guys ever seen something like this? I don't know why, but these are always in, like, rural areas, okay? I don't know if, like, people in rural areas, like, dream of urban centers or something. I don't know. But you always see these in rural areas, okay? So I just want you to imagine that you wanted to go to New York. And you walked up to one of these signs, and you see on here New York City, 215 miles. I have no idea where this is at, okay? I'm assuming East Coast, not Oregon here, okay? 215 miles. You don't walk up to this sign, like, if I did that this morning, I walked up to the sign, and I looked at it, and I said, awesome, I'm here, I'm in New York, yes, wow, this looks a little different than the TV shows, you know, and the movies, but hey, at least I could say that I've been to New York, right, you would think, I mean, you probably wouldn't come back anymore, you'd think something's wrong with me, right, like, I can't trust what that guy says, right, like, that, that's wrong, right, that's incorrect, this sign exists, to point you to the real destination. It's not the thing. It's pointing you to the thing. And if you think that's the thing, you're gonna be very disappointed, right? See, this miracle is meant to point you to not the food, not the miracle. It's meant to point you to the sufficiency of Jesus and your desperate need for him. That's not pointing to food or pointing to the needs of the earth or even pointing to your need for faith. If that's what you think it is, it's like staring at the New York sign, shouting, I made it. No, Jesus is the thing that this miracle is pointing to. Jesus, he is displaying that he is the new and better Moses and that his kingdom is coming and it's reversing the curse of the world. He is food for the body. But there is something far more significant and specific that the sign is pointing us towards. Well, what is it pointing us towards? We get our answer in verse 25. Verse 25, so Jesus, after this happens, they call him a prophet, they think he is, and he goes and he walks on water. Wish we could talk about that a lot more, but we don't have time, okay? So he goes, he walks on water, he's on the other side of the sea, and everyone's following him again. Look in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus, he rebukes these people for being enamored with the sign, like the New York sign, right? Verse 26, And they fail to understand what this sign is pointing to. And we even see that confirmed in verse 34 again. Why? Because they ask for more bread. They're like, hey, give us more. You know? He says, if you think baskets full of bread is a miracle, man, then you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't understood anything yet. And if you think a meal is ultimately going to satisfy you, you haven't seen anything yet. In verse 27, we see Jesus saying that we are to work for bread that gives more than material health or satisfies our cravings that we have in each moment of our lives. Jesus says we are to value eternal life more than merely the here and now sort of life. So there's this play on words between this idea of life. And these people, they're after temporary life. And Jesus wants them to see their need for eternal type of life. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he once observed that there are two Greek words in the New Testament for life. This will be on the screen. One word is bios. It's kind of where we get our word for biology, okay? It's biological life, it's nature, it's stuff that tends to run down and decay. And then there's another word in the New Testament, zoe, right? Something that is abundant, something that's full. It doesn't run out. It endures, right? It lasts. So in our story, bios is like a small fish. It's like barley bread, But here, Zoe is a meal that brings overflowing abundance, okay? And this is a quote, it's on the screen, uh, from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says, Bios has, to be sure, a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to Zoe, but only the sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place, or statue and a man. A man who changed from having Bios to having Zoe would have gone through as big a change as a statue, which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there's a rumor going around that some of us are someday going to come to Zoe, to life. See, what Jesus says is this. He says, I am the bread of life. He didn't say, I am bios. He says, I am zoe. Right? To have zoe is to trust in him, in Jesus. It's to feast on him. He's the one that gives you a meal that's more than you could afford and way better than you could ever expect. See, again, these people bring up Moses in verse 31 and they're beginning to see a little bit of a connection, right? They called Jesus a prophet in verse 14 and you see these people think Jesus, he's just a new prophet. But guys, a prophet, basically all they do is they are a teacher who points you to God but Jesus says, I don't just point you to God, I am God. That's, that's a really different type of prophet, okay? Okay. I don't just produce the bread of heaven like Moses did, I am the bread, right? I don't just point you to God, I don't just produce the bread of heaven, I am God, I am the bread. See, Moses led you out of slavery in Egypt, but I am going to deliver you out of the slavery of your sin and death. Moses led you like a shepherd leads sheep, but I am going to cause you to go and sit down in green pastures that you will enjoy for all eternity. Moses gave you bread from heaven, but I am the true bread from heaven. Moses gave you a Passover meal to remind you of God's grace, but I am the Passover meal to give you that in a very real sense you can experience God's grace. You see what it means to eat something. What does it mean to eat something? Well, it's to have something so intimately bound up inside of you that it nourishes you, it strengthens you, It grows you and it feeds you from within. See, what Jesus is saying is that there is a kind of feasting that gives you an overabundance of life. It doesn't wind down. It doesn't deplete. It doesn't decay. Let me ask you, do you really believe that? Do you believe what Jesus is saying to you this morning? That you literally could eat something that would never make you hungry again? Do you really believe that? I'm serious. Do you believe that? I don't know if we do. I I don't know if if I do that often. I I think the reason is that everything in our lives that we try to consume, it leaves us hungry again. And so we apply that experience to this this testimony here of Jesus. Uh, This will be on the screen. The great uh, theologian and philosopher Jim Carrey, um, starred in the movie The Mask, probably the best one, right? Uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. This Jim Carrey, right? The great theologian Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they could see it is not the answer. Rich, wealth, material stuff, right? Famous, applause. Even achieving your dreams, a thing you want more than anything. See, we're living in a day where people say, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Where people say, go do you, man, just do you. Achieve your dreams. Become what you've always dreamt of becoming. Now, hear me clearly, I'm not trying to shoot you down, okay? But let me just say that I do have a big problem with modern-day mantras like this because they project false hope on your life. That's what they do. They're pointing you towards the wrong end is what those mantras are doing. And honestly, you'll find them to be very cruel. You'll find them to be very false. And we know this. We know this, you might be chasing a dream right now that you think will ultimately satisfy you, but you've known this in other smaller ways potentially along the way. We know this. We return to barley bread. We return to Triscuits every week thinking that it will finally satisfy us. So you you thought that indulging in pornography again would have a different result this time. That didn't satisfy you, did it? You thought exerting your anger and control over your kids Or towards a coworker or a friend was going to leave you satisfied because it was building up for so long. Didn't work, did it? You thought eating right and exercising was going to solve everything. You thought doing one good deed every day was going to leave you satisfied. You thought your new job was going to be the solution because you hated your old one. You thought your increased income was going to fix everything. You thought a vacation was going to make everything just get better, and you came back, and it didn't work. You thought new goals, new strategies, a new relationship, a new hobby was the meal that you've been missing out on. You thought your success and that praise that you heard felt ringing in your ears was going to last, that it was going to be the answer, and you've discovered, like the great theologian Jim Carrey, that it wasn't the answer. You're still hungry this morning. And Jesus knows this. He knows that the only meal that you can ever feast on that will satisfy your hunger is him. And so God the Father, what did he do? Our passage tells us he sent his son Jesus into the world so that you could have lasting food for your soul. And here's how you get this. There's a reoccurring price that's talked about for this meal. It's Philip's main concern. How how are we going to pay for this thing, right? And then there's Jesus who continually says in the passage I just read, you know, don't work for things that don't last, work for things that, you know, that don't spoil, basically. Well, here, let me pull us back to Isaiah 55, 1 through 2, because this is the same type of imagery. It's on the screen. Isaiah 55, it says this, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Let me ask you, how can you be invited to enjoy an expensive meal that you could never afford. Well, naturally, someone has to pay for it, right? That's how you eat an expensive meal you can never afford. My senior year of college, me and six of my friends road tripped from Southern California up to Tigard, okay? And um, we like went and stayed at different cabins, different things, and I don't know where the origin of this thought came about. But before we left, we had all decided our goal is for one of us to ride a deer. I don't know why, okay? (laughs) And one of our friends' parents heard about this and made a bet with us. They said, all right, if you can get video footage of you riding a deer, okay, we will take you to Lucille's barbecue house, which was like our favorite place to go eat barbecue. And there's, a, there's an item on that menu, I think it's just called like the feast or something, and it's like hundreds of dollars. And every time we go, we're like someday, man, when we get real jobs, we're gonna have that meal, we're gonna enjoy that meal. And they said, if you can get some footage, we will buy that meal for you, we will enjoy it with you. And this is before like smartphones, guys, okay? We brought like a video camera, okay, <laughs> with us. And it's amazing, the, uh, the, the shortest, smallest person in our group, we got footage, man, in three seconds. He rode a deer, these deer were amazing, yeah. I wish I brought the video footage for you, I thought it would be too distracting though. Um, And so we won, we got the bet, right? We won the bet, we went home, they followed through on their word, right? And we sat around that table in our sweatpants, we went in sweatpants, okay? And we dined, and we ate, And until we couldn't eat anymore, okay, we had so much fun. As we sat there just remembering our trip and telling all of our stories to this guy's parents, I could never have afforded that meal. I was a poor college student saving up for an engagement ring. I could never have afforded that meal. See, when someone offers you food that you can't afford, and it's beyond your means, how do you typically respond? Well, you could say, uh, how much do I owe you? You could say, I'm fine with what I have. I'm not even interested. You could refuse it and say, "I, I could never take that from you. My ego won't allow it. But the best way to honor a lavish gift of food is to actually eat it. And it's to eat it with the one who gave it to you. It's to savor it. It's to relish it. It's to take it in. And it's to share it with as many people as you possibly can. See, Jesus is offering us this morning the richest meal ever. It's a meal that we enjoy today, and it's a meal that we will thoroughly enjoy forever with Him. If you consume this meal, it's Him. It's life with God, and you could have never afforded the cost to eat that meal. To enjoy the relationship with God around that table, you could never have been there. You you could never have afforded it. And so Jesus came, and he paid the price of the meal, but he didn't do it with money. He did it with his life. See, the meal Jesus is talking about, if, if you're not tuned into this, the meal he's talking about is his death, on a cross to pay your debt of sin against your holy creator God. Jesus is the only one who came into the world and experienced hunger so that he could multiply abundant food for you. He became thirsty so that he could be the living water. He experienced the darkness of the cross so that he could be the light of the world. He paid the price of his life so that we could go and eat without cost, so that we could feast on his life, so that we could be nourished forever from within. We could could all look at our lives this morning and just say, I'm a bit unnourished. My life is nibbling away at loaves and fish. Jesus said, True bread is abundant life, and it's as grand as a meal for thousands. And I offer it to you this morning. Come to me. I am the only food that satisfies you. I am that meal, the meal that you could have never attained on your own. And miraculously, He won't leave you hungry again. Do you believe it? You see, when you come to Jesus and experience this lasting food for your soul, you'll know that you don't need any other meals. That's what happens in this story because what happens at the end of this story, Jesus goes on this, this teaching moment of how he's the bread of life and all these people in this crowd leave him. They all leave him. They say, I don't get it, that's gross, Jesus. They miss it. But what happens? He turns to his disciples What does he say down in verse 67? What does he say? Do you want to go away as well? What do they say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of Zoe. of eternal life. They get it. Once you've feasted on the life of Jesus, you, you will never go hungry again, and, and even if you feel hungry, you realize I can't go anywhere else. Nothing else will satisfy me like Jesus. I don't know what other meal I could eat that would satisfy, satisfy me like you, Jesus. That's what they say. That's what this miracle is all about. That's what this sign means. Jesus is the food for the mind. He's the food for the body, and he's lasting food for the soul. He's the only food that satisfies So where else will you go today? God, I pray that we will see that Jesus, you are the center of everything.